I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Podcast. Paramount Plus has launched in the UK this week, bringing with it a plethora of new shows for Brits to watch, including Halo, Star Trek and much more. But as Netflix has found, a back catalogue only gets you so far. So what's in store for those that sign up? And is the service likely to become a must-have or must-forget? Pocalintz, Rick Henderson, has been following the launch and joins me to discuss the details. Meanwhile, I've been talking to the founder of RightCharge, a handy website that will tell you the best electrical vehicle home charger you need, and more importantly, the best electrical tariff to run it on to find out why not all chargers are equal. And finally, Pocalint's Adrian Willings joins me to tell us how he's been getting on with the Steam Deck from Valve. It's a portable PC, only slightly bigger than Nintendo Switch, that allows you to take your gaming on the go or, well, just in the bath. Stay tuned to find out more. But first, back to you, Rick. Tell us more about Paramount+. Plus. Well, this is a launch that we've been waiting for for some time because it's possibly the last of the big streaming services from America to finally make their way, its way over to the UK. Um, and also... Paramount is the home to quite a lot of big licenses, big TV shows and big films, such as um, Star Trek. That's a, that's an enormous mm. one. Mission Impossible, the Top Gun films. Um, in fact, pretty much everything that Tom Cruise has ever done. Um, so there was an awful lot of anticipation for Paramount+. Plus, and I'll be honest, its launch has been somewhat of a mixed bag. Oh, how come? There are two sides to this story. One, um, Paramount decided to do a massive deal with Sky to uh, launch the service in the UK, um, as well as launch its own app. Now, if you're a Sky customer, you get the best of it. This is where it's a mixed bag. The Sky experience is excellent, it must be said, because SkyQ and SkyGlass customers with Sky Cinema subscriptions get Paramount Plus for free. Cool. And therefore, as soon as you sign up for Paramount Plus through your Sky Q box or your Sky Glass TV, you can then use Paramount Plus both on your Sky devices, but also on mobile and apps and games consoles and anything you like. And you don't have to pay anything more. The problem comes when you're not a Sky Cinema subscriber and you've decided to um, subscribe to Paramount Plus itself because like many of the other services it costs quite a premium price it's £6.99 per month £69.90 if you pay for a whole year however in comparison to a lot of those streaming services it falls short in certain ways now yes you do get all of the Star Trek back catalogue and new shows as they're released you get uh, Halo the TV Mm -hmm. series Um, there are certain other series we can recommend like 1883 and Yellowstone Um, but the catalogue isn't as robust as say disney plus or um and certainly not netflix in fact i would say that the launch of this kind of reminds me a little of the launch of apple tv plus it took quite a while Mm. to have enough content that was worth watching for people to really want to invest um 
and on top of that, it's a mild disappointment that on launch, um, Paramount Plus is only streaming at maximum 1080p and 5.1 Dolby. Standard, All right. Why? Uh, why Dolby do we think? Why do we think that's the case? Because you'd expect in this day and age to everything to come with 4K Atmos standard. Yeah, I, absolutely. Especially considering that in America they have two tiers for their Paramount Plus, and they have a premium tier that includes 4K and Dolby Atmos and Dolby Vision. Um, so the technology obviously worked with those formats. But what I actually believe, and I don't know it's for sure, but this is, this is from my own experience, that they wanted to launch a stable service, allow it to get a foothold, and then add extra benefits. Mm. So. Um, say, for example, they suddenly, I mean, it, it wouldn't happen, but they got 20 million people suddenly signing up. The to, demand to, on the server would be quite hard, wouldn't it? Exactly. So I think that what they didn't want is they didn't want the experience to be completely just like as soon as you press a button and you just get the the spinning ring of death <laughs> and you're not, getting, you're not getting a stream. However, there have been, um, I've, I've noticed, I was looking at quite a lot um, after launch and there... It, it reminds me a lot of also Prime Video from about a year to two years ago where you click on it and the initial streaming quality is actually really poor. Right. Um, and it takes a good 10 to 20 seconds to sort of kick in even to the full HD. Now, I can I think, based on that, this is why we're not getting 4K. <laughs> not yet. Yeah, I mean, that as you say, it makes sense. It's, it's that, you know, making sure that it's stable and, and everybody's happy. I think... You know, I had a play with it yesterday and it was a lot of login errors and issues there. And I think obviously as everybody was just trying to go in and start pressing buttons and, and all the other stuff. Um, so, okay, the question beyond that then is, do we think, you know, the opening statement, is it a must have or must, or will it be a, you know, must forget? Is it, do you yeah. think there's enough that in six months time, if you're not getting it for free with Sky, that there's going to be enough for you to warrant subscribing? I th- I think if you're a Sky Cinema subscriber, it's obviously a must-have because it's free. It's or at no extra cost anyway. Um, if you are considering subscribing to it, you do get a seven-day trial, so it's worth giving it a look. But I have heard uh, anecdotally of a lot of people that I know having um, given it that seven days or at least clicked on it for the seven days and uh, and have decided not to pay money as things stand and i think that's more because of the content there's also another side issue which is um while it is launched in the uk there are several apps not available yet like for example it's not yet available on xbox that's going to come at the end of june at the very end of june so um so next week yeah so next week however on top of that though um game pass subscribers will get a month free so you get a better chance to check it out. That's certainly enough to uh, try and watch yeah. all of Halo, and maybe exactly not necessarily, that. maybe not necessarily all of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of actual content, um, if you, there are certain shows on there that are must see for Star Trek fans. For example, in in the UK, we've not had Star Trek: Strange New Worlds. For example, that's that. There are three episodes of that are currently available on there. Um, Discovery was taken off of Netflix, so you mm. finally get all four seasons of Discovery back to watch, as long as you don't mind the full HD presentation. And what I will say is that I actually don't mind the full HD presentation. I thought that certain shows do look absolutely fine in that format. 
Still to come, Adrian gives us his verdict on the Steam Deck. I think basically I've stuck to just the sofa and, to be honest, and bed once. And I think I tried it outside just to see how bright the screen was, but nowhere crazy. I haven't been in the bath with it yet or anything like that. The first major purchase after you bring an electric car home for the first time is a home charger. But with so many options and so many different tech specs to go within them, how do you know you're getting the right one? And once you do get the right charger, what about the right energy tariff to go with it? For seeing this problem, Charlie Cook started Right Charge, a website that helps you pick the right charger and tariff for your car. Wanting to find out more about the various technologies and options available, I started by asking him what Right Charge does and how he came up with the idea of selling chargers in the first place. Certainly, we, we make it as easy as possible for an electric car driver to get set up to charge at home in the cheapest and cleanest way, essentially. Um, we do that through two services that we run on our website. Uh, the first is a marketplace for chargeable installations. Um, so drivers come onto the website, they answer three questions about themselves and their home. Uh, they see a recommendation for which charge point we think best suits their needs. And then we connect them to a trusted installation company, one of our network of more than 80 installation companies across the UK, and they go ahead and get that charge point installed. And the second service is an energy tariff comparison service, but designed specially for electric car owners. So as well as asking questions about the home, like the big comparison services always will. Um, the site also asks what car do you drive, how far do you drive it, and how do you charge it? Because all of that is super important if you're going to figure out exactly which energy tariff is actually going to get you the best deal. Now, you've been founded this company a while ago. How, how did you get into this? What did you suddenly think? Oh, this is what everybody needs. I um, I was originally a civil engineer. I then did a couple of years in physics uh, in Geneva. Um, came back wanting to get into solar and wind deployment, um, but actually stumbled across a small startup at the time called Octopus Energy, um, which is now one of the UK's top unicorn startups and worth around $5 billion only seven years after founding, I think. And at Octopus, I was kind of given the opportunity to to learn all about um, electric car charging. Um, we, we created new energy tariffs that were designed specific, specifically for electric car drivers. Um, and we brought a few different products and services to market to support. And it was there where I really saw this market uh, I guess deploying and evolving so fast and, and it, it really felt like we needed a service in the market that could um, take all of that disparate information on different solutions and pull that all into one place and make it make it easier for the driver basically and that's that's why right charge was born now I'm going to ask a very provocative question which is all EV home chargers are the same aren't they so what difference does it make <laughs> and that's totally fair, Stuart, because I mean, you know, if if you're a if you're a new driver, you think, okay, I've got my car and now I need a charger. Every time you've ever had an appliance or, or anything that needs a charger, all chargers are the same, right? So why would you think any different? Our message is that all chargers are born different and not one size fits all, and it's definitely worth checking out which one might be best for you. Um and the reason I say that is because back in my Octopus days and here at Right Charge, we do hear regularly from drivers who didn't have that exposure to the options early on. They had a certain charge point fitted 
and then they come back to us and they they have to then reinvest in a charger that's more suitable for them um, which obviously costs them a lot of money and we're hoping to avoid that problem for a lot of people now i was going to say and what what tips would you say then for someone that's about to that's just bought a, an electric car and it's looking to to get a charger what what do they need to think about there's there's three key things that we we kind of see as like the real important factors to think about and and the website actually guides drivers through these these three questions and then recommends charges based on them so the first is um if you're one of the two-thirds of the country that's fortunate enough to have off-street parking private off-street parking and you charge your car overnight or you park your car overnight then charge points with quote-unquote smart charging functionality which essentially in its most basic form is the ability to schedule your charge from um, rather than just charging as soon as you plug in you can tell your charger when you need your car charged so you can say actually i only need my car charged fully charged at seven o'clock in the morning because i've got to leave at eight o'clock for work for example Mm. um you you then go and plug your car in at 6 p.m when you're having dinner but your charger will wait until uh your energy tariff gets cheaper so you if you switch to an electricity tariff with an off-peak period of electricity overnight which is what we recommend and can help drivers do your charger will then wait until that off-peak period starts to start charging and that's what that's probably the biggest benefit of having a charge point at home is that you can save hundreds of pounds on your energy bill and at the moment if you switch to an ev tariff and you schedule your charging you can save about uh, well over the average driver can actually save over 500 pounds a year right now compared to the price cap tariff which is quite astonishing um and then very quickly the other two are if you have solar panels on your home or if you're thinking about getting solar on your home then you certainly should uh, look at charges that can integrate with those solar panels and what that allows you to do is to automatically pull any excess power that you're not using in the home from your solar panels and put that into the car it stops that power going back to the grid which means that your car's using essentially free electrons at that point rather than pulling power from the from the electricity grid the third one's around allowing you to have a second charge point in the future and that's it's known as fuse protection um and that just means that when you've got two two charge points installed in the future they can they can balance the power between the cars and the home to avoid you blowing your home's fuse um so those are the three features that we we recommend drivers think about when they're looking at their charger and you talked about solar then there how how are you seeing an uptick in, in people interested in, in solar charging via, you know, via their, their charger? Or is that still something that's kind of like a nice to have, but hardly anybody goes for? Yeah, it's, it's really not as niche as you might think, or even I maybe would have expected. Um, we see about 25% of, of uh, users on our website go for a charge point that has that solar integration and typically that's about 200 pounds more expensive up front than the cheapest possible chargers so a quarter of drivers are are investing in that um, either ability to do that up front or the opportunity to do that if they were to install panels in the future Um, and we did a a customer survey recently which was which gave some fascinating results Um, about half of respondents who'd had a charge point installed and have an ev said that they either had solar installed or they were thinking about getting it in the future. So I think we're likely to see EVs probably drive an increase in people getting solar on their roofs once they start to think in a bit more detail about where their energy is coming from and, and what they could be doing to power their car cheaper and more sustainably. And do you feel that, you know, the smart charging stuff you talked about there, is that, is that 
again, how important is that to do you think, or, or is it just a case of, you know, we'll just plug it in and and don't worry about it? I mean, I think it's a no-brainer to most drivers. If you've got the ability to do it, then it's going to save you hundreds of pounds a year. So, so first and foremost, it's just an awareness thing. Um, I think the reason, the only reason that a driver wouldn't do that if they charge at home and can park overnight is because they just haven't heard about these specialist energy tariffs, um, and so they're almost, you know, in in um, un- unaware that they're, they're charging on a on a standard tariff and paying more than they could. So for us, we just want to make sure that every driver who switches to electric is is made aware of the fact that these tariffs are out there and, and how much they can save them in terms of reducing their energy bills. From a societal perspective, though, there's actually some really big reasons why we would want to try and encourage this charging behaviour. Um, the first is that our electricity grid actually is cleaner overnight than it is during the evening, and that's because to meet the peak electricity demand of the evening, we turn all of our gas turbines up. And then the opposite happens overnight. As that electricity demand drops off, we all go to bed. We turn those those gas turbines down and we're left with a higher proportion of our electricity coming from low carbon sources like wind and nuclear. So electricity that you consume overnight is about 25% cleaner than electricity you consume during the evening. And if we're talking about 10 million electric cars on our roads in 2030, 2035, that's an awful lot of electricity that we want to make sure is coming from cleaner sources. Um, the second factor is, is reinforcement of the grid. If we, if we can get all of our EVs charging overnight, there's an awful lot less reinforcement we need to do to our electricity grid. Um, that's less ripping up roads, less laying thicker cables, um, and that could save the country tens of billions in reinforcement costs now you talked about you know we talked about the home charging market there how and and, and home chargers as well how much more do you think that there is in terms of of innovation to go into these we've obviously seen quite a lot over the last couple of years with smart charging with the ability so solar fuse protection all those kind of things do you think there's the technology's got much further to go or do you think if you were going to buy something today then what you buy now is is going to be fine for the next decade? I think we've just touched the surface of innovation in home charging. And whilst I certainly wouldn't recommend anyone just holds off and waits for the future, because economically you're much better getting a charge point installed now with the technology we have now, so you can start saving. At some point this decade, we are very likely to see the emergence of what's known as vehicle-to-grid charging. And what that means is instead of just putting energy into our vehicles at home, it's the ability to then actually pull energy out of that vehicle and push it back to the grid. And that might sound totally counterintuitive, but what that means we can do is firstly, as a country, when we're generating more wind power or solar power or whatever it is, any renewable power that we can't consume in that moment, we can essentially push that into a huge distributed resource of batteries in people's garages, store that renewable power up, and then we can pull that back and push it into the grid, say, overnight or when the wind dies down. For the driver, though, what that's going to look like is they have this flow of energy going in and out of their car, and they're essentially buying it when power is cheap, and they're selling it when power is high. Um, meaning that they plug in, leave the car overnight, they wake up with the power they need, 
but during that nighttime they've bought and sold power and they've made money whilst they sleep so that's uh that's the next evolution of charging and obviously that's quite an exciting future yeah i mean we've been talking to some people previously on on the podcast and and the idea of cables that can you know that you can take power out of uh take power out of your uh cars but also you know determine whether you take it out to sell it back to the back to the grid to make money from the 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 power that you've stored already i think the final question i have really is we've talked you've talked quite a bit about you know how much a difference your electricity tariff makes is that is that the magic like the key ingredient to all of this get a good charger but then make sure that you've got a good tariff to go with it yeah i think you're right Stuart, for sure um the the technology in the ta- in the charger is fantastic right now and actually at the end of this month the uk will be bringing in new regulation to mandate that every charge point sold in the uk at a minimum has this smart charging functionality which um which will allow you to schedule against a tariff but i do think that part of the reason that we're not seeing as much like dr- as as many drivers smart charging as we might expect is actually more driven on the tariff front and the fact that you know the, the vast majority of the population for good reason haven't come across a tariff that gives you different electricity prices overnight than during the day and it's that awareness piece that we think will really make a difference and and so we're working very closely with big car retailers like dealership groups leasing companies etc online car retailing platforms so that when they sell an electric vehicle they can refer the driver their customer over to right charge and, and instantly they get that full picture they see the charge point and the tariff together and the benefits that putting those two pieces of the puzzle can bring Valve Steam Deck entered the scene as one of the most anticipated game consoles ever, offering a device that's powerful enough to provide access to an entire Steam library, while still offering similar levels of portability as the Nintendo Switch. But with such lofty goals, can it deliver? Pocalins' Adrian Willings has been playing games on the new Steam Deck to find out. So Adrian, do you like it? Absolutely, yes. It was a long time coming, so I put my pre-order in what felt like the beginning of last year but I guess was the middle and then had to wait for the second batch of releases impatiently while everyone else is getting this and um, it was worth the wait because it's a really convenient thing it's really easy to be able to just play PC games anywhere in the house which is a joy so playing on a sofa or in the bedroom or wherever else let's just back it up ever so slightly how would you describe it to someone that's never heard of the Steam Deck before? Uh, like a grown-up Switch, which is how we refer to it <laughs> in our house, because both my kids have got Switches, but I've always sort of had the view that the games on the Switch aren't to the same level as PC games, because I'm kind of a snob in that way. Um, so, that you know, they're playing Mario Kart and things like that, whereas I want to I play slightly more graphically intensive games or in-depth rpgs or racing games or whatever else with a bit more detail and fidelity to it and so this is a more powerful machine that's able to do it and i wasn't sure it would be able to because it doesn't seem logical to be able to cram pc level hardware into such a small device it is a bit bigger than the switch but it's not so chunky and massive that it's horrible to hold or carry around with you and so it's a great device to just be able to play almost seamlessly and when 
the device can't handle the power, you have the ability to tether to your PC and stream games from your gaming PC directly to it. So on the same Wi-Fi network, you can use your processing power from your gaming PC to then send gameplay to the, to the console. So it has a lot more flexibility to it. And so a lot of people would presume, you know, as you said there, you get a gaming PC, put it into effectively a Switch console that's slightly bigger. Are there any limitations? Did you find when you were playing, I mean, what games were you playing and and and, and how did they perform? Well, I've tried all sorts of um, games. More intense ones are probably, you know, something like uh, Forza Horizon 5, for example, which is a fairly recent release. And obviously the difference is it can't run on the same sort of level of graphical fidelity that it would do on my gaming PC, which is pretty high end. So you do have to compromise with slightly lower settings. And the screen resolution isn't as high anyway, so it's not as high as like a 1440p or 4K monitor because it's a smaller screen. But you're making that sacrifice of having slightly lower graphical settings and slightly lower FPS, but still a really smooth experience and that was what i've found surprising is that it's really smooth experience across a range of different games and a comfortable one and an enjoyable one and the battery lasts a surprising amount of time so based on my experience of playing thin and light gaming laptops i assumed that the steam deck would need to be plugged into the mains constantly to get enough power to be able to play the games at a decent frame rate because um, that's the experience I've had with gaming laptops is if you try and run it off the battery, generally the frame rates drop horribly and it's just not, it's a choppy mm. experience. It's not as good. That isn't the case with the Steam Deck. You can still play on battery and get a really good experience for two or three hours, depending on the games you're playing. And that's a significant amount of time and enough for me because I don't generally have that much time to play games anyway. So it's nice to dip in and out and have that freedom to be able to do it away from a desk. And did you find, you know, obviously majority of, of PC gamers like that whole mouse and keyboard experience. And this obviously is very much more a console kind of controller experience. And did you find that changed the games that you wanted to play on it or, or or was that not an issue? You can dock other devices to it. I haven't done that yet, but it has the ability to have Bluetooth so you can theoretically connect up other things. But it, yes, it has got a controller sort of logic to it, but also it has trackpads on the side, which act kind of like a laptop trackpad. So you have some of that functionality there. And it's touchscreen as well, same way as a Switch. So you have a lot of different options in terms of how you interact with things. The limitations are sometimes some of the games don't play nicely. And that's one of the things that Steam or Valve has been working on. So when it first launched, there weren't that many games. There was only about 100 games that were deemed to be playable, which is verified by Valve as working nicely on the Steam Deck. And over time, that list has grown, and it's now somewhere over 3,000. Uh, looking at my library, wow. which has got about 900 games in it, there was about 90, I think, when I first got it, that were guaranteed to work. And that has now crept up to about 100, which obviously, you know, it's, out of 900 games, it's not that many, but it's actually quite a number of them are marked as verified and definitely playable. And I found that some that were marked as basically not tested were still workable and you could still play on them, but you just had to reprogram some of the buttons and it just required a little bit more effort to get into. So it shows that there's still potential by the time, you know, the next lot of people have got their Steam Deck, there'll be even more games and more games for the next lot after that. So I think it will just get better and better. And that's one of the things that 
also has improved over time as well as they're just constantly rolling out regular updates to the operating system and the way it works. So one of the complaints I had when I first got it, if I was trying to pick holes in it, was that the fan noise was too loud. So obviously it has to try and keep cool um, so it runs well. And I found that when you were using it without headphones plugged in, over if you were doing something intense, if you're playing an intense game for a quite a period of time, the fan noise is quite obnoxious and there's like a loud white noise coming from it. Obviously it's a necessary evil of such a small device, but they've actually rolled out an update recently which knocks that down quite significantly and gives the Steam Deck control more effectively over the fan, which means that it actually reduces it. And if you choose to do things like set a lower maximum FPS, or um, other adjustments that you can do to the refresh rate and things like that that will also help so you can actually improve your experience and i also found if you plugged in headphones it wasn't really a problem anyway but it's just it's nice that they've tackled issues like mm. that in quite a short period of ownership and i suppose the final question i have for you which is probably a very strange one is uh now that you can play your pc games anywhere where is the most unusual place that you found yourself playing <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, not. I think mostly I've stuck to just the, the sofa and, to be honest, and bed once. And I think I tried it outside just to see how bright the screen was, but nowhere crazy. I haven't been in the bath with it yet or anything like that. There we go. Life goals right there. <laughs> be a bit dangerous. It's not waterproof, so we'll risk it. Well, that's it for this week's show. Until next time, thanks for listening. Pip pip. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.